Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. We're going to read Psalm 25. Psalm 25, a Psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in, the, in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me. For your goodness' sake, O Lord, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. Today, Exodus 32, 11 through 24, it's entitled, The Golden Calf, The Testing of Moses. All right, so uh, let's see, you're starting in verse 11. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord, his God, and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on the... Uh, they were written on the one side and on the other they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. So it was, as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing, so Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tables out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf which they had made, 
which they had made, burned it in the fire and ground it to powder, and he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. Then Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, uh, let them break it off. So they gave it to me and I cast it into the fire and out came and out this calf came. I think I read that last verse a little bit wrong. My eyes were getting fuzzy. I need to get better glasses when I'm reading this. Everything is different sizes over here, and I'm learning that age, you know, age gets to you. Anyway, sorry about that last verse. Exodus 32 is logically divided into three main sections with several subsections. Today's passage fills the second main section, and it has three individual subsections. Last week, we saw the testing of Aaron and his failure to stand against the pressures of the people. The hint of Moses' testing was then introduced in anticipation of today's passage. He was entrusted with an office. He has faithfully carried it out so far, but he has not been placed in a position which could truly lead to pride, arrogance, or greed for more than what he has. Will he accept the fading glory of temporary fame at the expense of his people, or will he, through humility and love of his people, seek the glory of the Lord alone? The lesson of Moses is one that we should all pay heed to. Fame is a great temptation, and quite often it leads people to go from bad to worse. Humility among the famous is rare, and yet we are all said to have at least 10 minutes of fame. Will those 10 minutes prove us humble and gracious or haughty and self-aggrandizing? It's probably good to continuously evaluate ourselves just in case that 10 minutes comes along when we aren't expecting it. And should it last for more than 10 minutes... We can always look back to the life of Moses. He was a man who had so much, and yet he was willing to set aside the thought of more and defer to that which is for the Lord's glory and for the sake of his people. Our text verse today comes from Psalm 106. They made a calf in Horeb and worshiped the molded image. Thus they changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. And therefore, he said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. Greatness and humility are not opposed one to another. Rather, they are intricately connected. And there is a difference between false humility and true humility. It isn't always evident, but the true colors normally shine forth enough for those who have discernment to be able to tell which is which. Moses was a humble man. He was a faithful mediator and a great leader. To this day, he is revered by both Jew and Gentile for his amazing qualities. Today's passage is one which highlights his greatness. He was willing to speak openly and frankly to the Lord about what was right and proper. He was tested, and his test is set forth for our instruction. This is all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is the pleading of Moses, which is verses 11 through 14. Verse 11, then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God. The word for pleaded in this verse is halah. 
It's just the second time that it's been seen in the Bible. It is normally translated as being afflicted or put to grief, even regarding an infirmity. In this case, it means to beseech, but it is a petition which is certainly one of grief or anguish. The very last words were those of the Lord speaking to Moses. They closed out our sermon of the verses last week. In them, there was a twofold aspect to the Lord's words. The first was that the Lord was ready to destroy Israel, and the second is that the Lord would then make Moses a great nation. Here's what it said. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. The resolve of Moses is being tested. Will he yield to human ambition, or will he demonstrate the leadership qualities of humility and fidelity to those he leads? The word halah shows that the test has afflicted him in his soul, and he is looking to the Lord for the remedy of that affliction. Further, in the Hebrew of these words, it says, Vechal Moshe et Penei Yehovah Elohav, and beseeched Moses the face of the Lord his God. To seek the face of someone is to seek their favor. Moses is seeking the favor of the Lord while in a state of distress. From these few words, we can already glean a clue as to how Moses will respond to this test. And even more, the emphatic use of the words, the Lord, his God, shows that even though Israel had lost their interest in seeking the true God and had sought out another through false worship, Moses had not. He still had sought the Lord, his God. The Lord had said, let me alone. But Moses was unwilling to do so. Instead, like his forefather Jacob, he entered into a wrestling match. One was by a river. This one is on a mountain. But the dust begins to fly as Moses seeks to obtain a blessing, not for himself, but for his people Israel. Their destruction is promised, but Moses stands in the gap between the Lord and them. On the surface, the words, let me alone, seem to be in order for Moses to depart and let the Lord take out his vengeance. But the actual intent is far different. It is to spur the man into a different direction, one Moses is faithful to follow. Verse 11 going on, and he said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? The word wrath here is the same word that was used in verse 10. It is af. It means a nostril or a nose, and hence it speaks of the face or even the whole person. It is translated as wrath because when a person is angry, their breathing becomes in rapid passion and the mental imagery becomes clear. The Lord's anger is so evident in his words to Moses that it is as if his nostrils are fuming with rage. Moses' question to the Lord concerning his wrath is ingeniously phrased. Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? In verse 7, we read this. And the Lord said to Moses, go get down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. The Lord had distanced himself from Israel, calling them your people when he spoke to Moses. Moses now returns that sentiment right back on the Lord. He will use this relationship with the Lord as an argument for their continued favor in his sight. Verse 11 continues, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Again, this verse goes back to verse 7. The Lord said to Moses that he, meaning Moses, brought them up out of the land of Egypt. However, Moses defers again to it as the Lord's work. And he explains it by saying that it was done with bekoach gadol ubeyad hazakah, by power great and by a hand mighty. 
Moses may have been the human leader, but his actions were accomplished by the power and the might of the Lord. Again, Moses shows his humility. He was, in essence, offered the right to boast of having brought Israel out of Egypt, and he refused it. Instead, he magnified the greatness of the Lord. Verse 12, why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Moses has established first that Israel is the Lord's people. He now demonstrated that through their miraculous deliverance, I can't pronounce that at all. Forgive me. Wow, my tongue is just all over. He gives a second reason why he should turn from his anger. It is for the sake of his people who bear his name. The reproach of the Egyptians against Israel would thus become a reproach against his own name. It would show that he was fickle in choosing them and then destroying them. Moses is first and foremost concerned with the honor of the Lord, even above the state of his beloved family in the flesh. This implicitly goes to another point, which is not readily discernible, but which is evidenced throughout the pages of the Bible. As the Lord is the only God, then his honor is necessary, not just for Israel's sake, but for the sake of all people on the earth. If God's people are destroyed, even if it is justly deserved, then it would in turn lead to the destruction of all people on earth. If there is no hope for the fallen and wayward people of God, then there could truly be no hope for those who are not called as his. There is much more tied up in the preservation of Israel than simply that which is on the surface. The same is true with Israel of today. Although Christ has come and the nations are saved through him, God's faithfulness to his unfaithful people Israel still bears on his name and on his ability to preserve that which he is committed to. Verse 12 continues, Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Verses like this one often bring a charge that the God presented in the Bible cannot be the true God. How can God change his mind? This is the same sentiment that is seen at other times in Scripture. It appears that he is going in one direction and then changes and goes in another direction. This is not the case. The idea of God's relenting or repenting of an action is not the same as a human doing so. The record of Scripture indicates that God is working towards an ultimate end. And he said it right at the beginning, so we know that that is true. When he does something, it is to accomplish meeting that end. In the case of what is occurring here, there are at least two reasons for the verbiage employed. The first is that which we have already seen. Moses is being molded, and he's being tested for his learning and his growth not the Lord's. The second is that Israel will learn that they cannot assume to be the Lord's people and not be subject to the Lord's wrath. If they are his people, they are more subject to it, not less. To those whom much is given, much is required. Thank you. Verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. Another reason is now given by Moses for the Lord to turn from his anger. It is based on the covenant that he made with his fathers before him. The promise was made, and for Israel to be destroyed would at least delay the promise. And it would also make Moses, not Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to appear to be the true source of this peculiar people of God. Further, Moses also sees that if this occurs to them now, then it would be that much easier to repeat it in the future. Even if the Lord promises to make Moses a great nation, 
How could that promise be any more reliable than what was previously spoken to the fathers? And so his words indicate that the Lord swore by his own self. As there can be no greater (laughs) vow than this, then it must stand. And this is reflected in the words of Hebrews chapter 6. Here's what it says there. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Verse 14. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. The word relent or naham comes from a primitive root, which means to to sigh. Thus, by implication, it gives the idea of letting up or giving into a matter. The Lord has tested Moses concerning the situation, which he was fully aware of all along. And in essence, he gives a sigh. Okay, Moses, you've convinced me. But in reality, it is Moses who has changed and grown not the Lord. In the process of what has occurred, the Lord gave an intended action, but it was conditional. After his purpose in giving that was met, he then announced another action. There is not fickleness, rather there is wisdom in what has occurred. Remember your promises, O God. Remember what you have said in days of old. When we stray from the correct path which we should trod, from the holy path of which you have told, remember your word to your servant, upon which you have caused me to hope. Help me again to be observant as toward your precepts. Help me always to cope. Forgive my transgressions, those of my youth and of my failings, even in latter days. Help me to walk in sincerity and in truth and to abide in your precepts now and always. Our second thought today is the sound of singing. It's verses 15 through 18. Verse 15, and Moses turned and went down from the mountain. Moses, having received the assurance that Israel will not be destroyed, turns to go. The delay from the admonition of verse 7 could not have been a long one, but it was one which resolved a great deal concerning Moses and how he would continue to lead Israel in the future. Verse 15 going on, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. This goes back to uh, the last verse of chapter 31 where it said, and when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. The detail given here that Moses had these tablets is not unnecessary. In fact, it is critical to understanding the nature of the word of God, the person of Jesus Christ, and man's relation to both. This will be seen as the account progresses. At this time, it says that they are in Moses' hand singular. Later, it will say they were in his hands, plural. I think that's in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, people will try to find fault in that. You know, scholars like to tear the Bible apart. There is no problem with this. The singular here stands for the plural. Having something in one's hand means possession of it, regardless of whether it is in one hand or both hands or in neither hand. This is seen, for example, in Genesis 39, verse 3, when speaking of the exceptional work performance of Joseph where the same term, beyado, is used. 
it said there, and his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. He doesn't have anything in his hand, and yet it's singular, speaking of the plural or the concept of having possession of something. Verse 15 continues. The tablets were written on both sides, on the one side and on the other they were written. The words here seem easy because your translators made a choice about them, but they are highly debated among scholars. Some say that this means that the words were deeply carved through the stone. In this, they would be visible from both sides. However, this would mean that they would be in reverse on the back. And further, certain letters which form a full enclosure, like our, our letter O, would then fall out. That's not likely. Others believe that this means that some of the commands were on the right on one tablet and on the left on the other, not on both sides of both tablets. It is known that Assyrian and Babylonian tablets were written on both sides, but Egyptian tablets rarely were. The specificity here, though, tends to favor that it was written on both tablets and on both sides. In that they were written on both sides, then, it would prohibit anyone adding to them in the future. What was written filled the tablets and thus formed the basis of the law. It was from God and man could not add to it. And so I would suppose that's probably correct. Verse 16, now the tablets were the work of God. What this means is that the tablets themselves were made by God. And this may seem obvious, but when a second set is made, they will be made not by God, but by Moses. The specificity is given for a reason because specificity will later be given for the second set. Here's what it says in Exodus 34. And the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai as the Lord commanded him, and he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The first set was made by God. The second set will be made by man. However, both sets will be consistent in another area. Verse 16 going on, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. The word writing is a noun. It's miktav. It's going to be used just nine times in the Bible, and it means writing as in a thing written, like you have a book. Miktav, okay, it's a thing written. It comes from the more common verb, katav, which is the act of writing. The writing here, however, is defined by a verb, karat, which means to engrave. This is the only time that it's used in the entire Bible. There is a marvelous contrast to what occurs here and what happens in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. Here's what it says there. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a certain woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? They said this testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. 
When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The same God who wrote with his finger on the stone, engraving it so that it could not be erased, also wrote in the sand that which was soon swallowed up by footfalls and the wind. We know what was written in the stone, and it is what condemns us. We have no idea what was written in the sand, but it freed a sinner. On Mount Sinai, God made the first tablets, and he also wrote the law on them. Later, Moses will make the second tablets, like the first. But God will still be the one to write on those second set. It should be especially noted that the term Lord, meaning Jehovah, is used 14 times in this chapter. The term Elohim, meaning God, and referring to the true God, is used only four times. However, two of those times it is in connection with the term Lord. In other words, it says Jehovah Elohim, or the Lord God. Only in verse 16 that we're looking at right here does it say Elohim when speaking of the true God, but without the term Lord. One might think it would say that both tablets and writing were done by the Lord, but it doesn't. Instead, it says only Elohim. There's obviously a reason for this. Verse 17, and when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. Joshua has not been mentioned since Exodus 24, verse 13. Here's what it said. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. Then Moses went up into the mountain and a cloud covered the mountain. This was over seven chapters and 24 sermons ago. And yet enigmatically, they both left the camp together to go up on the mountain, but then only Moses is mentioned as going up into the mountain. Now Moses is turned to go back down the mountain, and enigmatically, Joshua is there once again with him. Joshua is mentioned only seven times in the book of Exodus. Five of those times, the verse in which he is mentioned includes the concept of war or fighting in battle. The book of Joshua continues with this theme of him being the one who fights the Lord's battles. His name means Yah is salvation. The question is, why is he mentioned out of the blue once again, just as he was in Exodus 24? This goes back to what was said in Exodus 17 with these words. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Moses, or he who draws out, has pictured Christ the one who has drawn out the law, having received the law from God while on the mountain. Joshua is now reintroduced here because the spirit of Amalek has infected the camp. The name Amalek is derived from the word am, which means people, and from the word malak, which means to nip or wring off the head of a bird with or without completely severing it from the body. Thus, they are the people who wring off. They are those who are disconnected from the body and strive to disconnect the body. Aaron has been led astray by this same deceiving spirit, by those who would sever the head from the body. However, Joshua, or Yah is salvation, is returning to the camp with Moses where this will be corrected. Moses, or he who draws out, is the one to receive and in turn give the law to the people. Joshua, or Yah is salvation, is noted as the one to defend the law and to save the people from the consequences of violations of the law. Both then are pictures of Christ in redemptive history. 
Joshua's enigmatic introduction is no mistake. Instead, it is given to form a picture for us. However, in the historical context, he has been with Moses the entire time, but he was obviously not privy to the conversation which the Lord had with Moses concerning the idolatry which was taking place in the camp below. And because of this, the noise to him is disturbing in that he assumes that a battle is taking place. Verse 18, but he said, it is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. Two new words are introduced here, geburah or might and halushah or that of being overcome. The second will only be used this one time in the Bible. A battle has its own sound. Some men are on the advance and their sounds rise in strength. Others are on the retreat or worse and their voice is that of anguish as their strength fades and their lives come to ruin. In the final clause, the word rendered as singing is a repeat of the same verb as in the previous two clauses. It's all the same word in all three of these clauses here. The word is anot, and it means to sing, to shout, or to testify. A literal translation would say, this is the pulpit commentary, it is not the voice of them who raised the cry, that word, of victory, nor is it the voice of them who raised the cry, that same word, of defeat, the voice of them who raise a cry, do I hear? It's the same word each time. A reason for translating it as singing is because Moses had stood above the battle which Joshua had engaged in against the Amalekites, and he was familiar with what the sound of battle was like. He had also been on the shores of the Red Sea after Pharaoh and his armies were defeated, and he had listened to the sounds of Israel as they sang the song which he had penned for them. The sound he now heard was the latter. And yet, believe it or not, a war was also being waged in the camp, but the inhabitants didn't know it. Instead, they sang as if their victory was complete. The silence of the enemy, however, did not mean his defeat, but theirs. Moses' words here show us that the voice of those who raised a cry were certainly confused. What a sad picture of all who would depart from the word of the Lord to that which is false. Think of our prophecy update today and the people turning away from the word. It appears that there is freedom and victory, but in fact there is only temporary joy followed up with great anguish. What is perceived to be a point of jubilation turns out to be a point of shame and folly. How great are your deeds, O Lord our God. Wonderful, splendid, majestic, we cry to you. Our eyes have seen glory as our feet have trod. You have brought us out to a life brand new. But we have turned aside from our pure devotion and have let our hearts be seduced away from you. To false gods, we have danced with emotion. Turn our hearts back to the path that is true. And in the place, O Lord, which you have furnished for your own dwelling, we too shall dwell, leaving never the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Our third thought today is so great a sin. It's verses 19 through 24. Verse 19, so it was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. The calf and the dancing are both specifically noted as if being singled out. The last time that mecholah or dance was mentioned was back in Exodus 15 when the people danced before the Lord celebrating his victory over the armies of Pharaoh. Here they are dancing to an idol, a calf. The mountain smoked where the Lord had descended, but their eyes were turned away from him and toward the work of their own hands. It would have been evident, even from some distance, that the Lord was the last thing on their minds. And because of this, the anger which the Lord had previously exhibited before Moses 
now feels him. Verse 19 continues. So Moses' anger became hot and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Later in Deuteronomy chapter 19, Moses is going to tell the people that he threw out the tablets and broke them before their very eyes. They must have seen him coming at some point and jointly lucked up towards him. At that time, and because of his anger at what he saw, he threw them down in their sight. This signifies the annulment of the covenant. It's done. It was a lesson that in their breach of the words which they had uttered, the word of God was made of no effect. But just as important, the breaking of the tablets demonstrated that Moses did not see the law as a law of curses. Because if he did, he would have brought it to them and he would have held it over them, showing them where their punishment was to lie. Instead, the law was a gift from the Lord to the people. They were found unworthy of the gift and thus the law was broken. However, that the law is not a law of curses, it does not mean that the law does not bring a curse. Paul explains this in Galatians 3, very, very specifically. The breaking of the tablets here is never mentioned again in the negative by God later. In other words, it is to be considered an act of justifiable emotion by Moses. However, and as I explained in a previous sermon, a picture is being made in the breaking of these tablets. It is a picture of our spiritual state. The laws are permanent, but are capable of being broken. In this, God knew that Moses would break them. The first set of tablets pictures Adam. The tablets were made by God and they were engraved by him. Adam was created by God and he was given a law by God, but he broke that law. The second set pictures Christ. They were made by Moses, but the words were still engraved by God. Jesus came from man and was born under God's law. He never broke God's law. In both, the law was written by God, but only in Christ does the law remain unbroken. And this is why the term God was used twice in verse 16. God's law was broken by Adam. It remained unbroken by Christ. Verse 20. Then he took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire, and ground it to powder. This verse logically comes after verse 24 in time, but in terms of importance, it logically comes now. The tablets were broken, and the next thing to be highlighted is the destruction of that which caused the offense. And so it notes now that the calf was burned and then ground down. The word for ground, or tachan, is introduced here. It will be used eight times, and it signifies the act of grinding. What probably is the case is that after the calf was burned, millstones were used to grind up the gold into the very finest of powder. That which was supposedly a god was reduced to powder in a common grinding device that was used by the women of the house, or by the lowest of slaves, or even, as in the case of Samson, a lowly prisoner. After that, it was dispersed where it would not be quickly overlooked. Verse 20 going on, and he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. In Deuteronomy 9, verse 21, it tells us that he cast the powder into the brook that descended from the mountain. Their source of drinking water would become the reminder of their sins. Each time they went there, it would be as if they were drinking in a reminder of what they had done to offend the Lord. The Lord their God, their true source of life, was at the top of the mountain in smoke and in fire. Their false idol and the source of their shame was there at the bottom of it, drowned in the water that they had to come to daily in order to drink and stay alive. What a remarkable contrast between the two. Verse 21, and Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? 
The words of Moses to Aaron show that he holds Aaron as chiefly responsible for what occurred. He was left in charge of the people, and he failed in controlling them. However, there is a hint of excuse allowed for Aaron by asking what the people did to him. The words, what did this people do to you, are to be taken in a negative sense. Moses knows before hearing the facts that Aaron was not the initiator of what happened. However, if he was weak, he was still responsible. If he was threatened, he was still responsible. But the fact that Moses asks for a reason allows that Aaron can yet be forgiven for his offense. Verse 22, so Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. There's a slight note of commendation for Aaron here. Not much, but there is a little bit. He doesn't argue. You get faced with something, you often want to argue yourself out, don't you? He didn't do that. Rather, he submits to the authority of Moses. Further, he calls him his younger brother Moses Adoni, or my Lord. This is the only time that he is recorded as saying this, and it shows that he knows that he is in the weaker position and is liable for the full measure of the consequences to come. However, that is as far as the commendation can go. He next does exactly what Adam did when he was faced with his sin. First, Adam blamed the Lord directly, and then he kicked the can down the road to Eve. When she got the can, what did she do? She just kicked it further down the road. Here's what it says. Genesis chapter 3, and he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you, blaming God, gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is it you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Just kicking the can down the road. Aaron is found to be no different than his first parents. He even implicitly blames Moses for what occurred. He proceeds with two separate excuses for what happened. The first is not sufficient for the outcome, and the second will be an outright lie, which is absurd on the surface. The first is ha'am ki beru hu. The people, they are in evil. He says it as if it is their defining characteristic. Not only are they intent on evil, they dwell in evil. It is their nature. So how could he be blamed for this? He implies that, that Moses already knew this and that he shouldn't have expected any less. The failings of Adam are found reoccurring in Aaron, 28 generations later. Verse 23, for they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this man, Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. This is almost word for word what was said to him by the people. Aaron is precise here, even to the fact that they gave the credit of bringing them out of Egypt to Moses rather than to the Lord. However, our verses today finish on a very sad note. Aaron's second and highly lame excuse, verse 24, and I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. Aaron fails to give the specifics here. In verse two, he asked for the golden earrings of the wives, the sons, and the daughters. As these were the precious items which he thought they would never part with, it shows that he was afraid of admitting that he had misjudged the situation entirely. In order to not look like even more of a failure than he already was, he omits these words and simply makes it look like a general appeal for gold was made. However, he still uses that rather rare word for break, which is parak. Instead of saying, take them off, he uses a stronger word, which almost gives the idea of violence. He takes credit for challenging the people, but not in the same degree as that which really took place when he was approached by them. 
Finally, in verse 2, after asking for the gold, he told them to bring it to him. Here, he simply said that they gave it to him. It is as if he tried to get them to make their own God, but they forced the job on him. Poor Aaron. With each step of his excuse, he digs himself a little bit deeper in trouble with the Lord. Verse 24 finishes with, so they gave it to me and I cast it into the fire and this calf came out. This is the most ridiculous aspect of all. First, he notes that the people brought the gold to him as if he was now made responsible for it. But being the noble and faithful soul he was, he simply just threw it into the fire, knowing that nothing could ever come out except a blob. But lo and behold, out comes the calf. Thus, Aaron has shown himself to be free from guilt because forces beyond his control fashioned the thing. However, as was seen in verse 4, it was fashioned with an engraving tool. The absurdity of his claim is seen in what was there before him as the people worshipped. His weakness, his disrespect for the Lord, his suppression of the truth, and his outright lies have angered the Lord to a very great measure. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, we're going to read this. And the Lord was very angry with Aaron and would have destroyed him. So I prayed for Aaron also at that same time. Aaron was tested and he failed. Even after his failure, he proved himself unworthy of being restored through his continued negative behavior. However, where his sin did abound, grace towards him will abound all the more. Thank God for the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. The ongoing lesson of this incident is that each of us, every person here needs to remember this, we're susceptible to failure, but each of us can overcome it as well. Aaron succumbed to it. Moses has thus far prevailed. These people and the things that they have done have been given to us as examples of what is right and proper to do. The record of their achievements and their failures has been given to us as goals, goals to attain the good and goals to rise above the bad. How many churches have gone the way of Aaron and have succumbed to the pressures of their surroundings, eventually bowing to the golden calf of idolatry? Saw it today. How many times do I have to raise this Bible in one prophecy update? As we will see with Aaron, the Lord is gracious and will provide forgiveness, but his patience is not without limits. The seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation give commendation, encouragement, and hope, but they also give warnings and rebuke. Let us individually and more especially as a congregation, pay heed to the Lord, be attentive to his word, and never allow anything but the worship of the true God to permeate our gatherings. Let us lift our eyes to the Lord and fix them there so that when he comes, we will stand approved and rewarded for the lives we have lived. And should there be a person who's listening today that has never discerned the difference between the false gods of the world and the true God who transcends the world, please give me just another moment to explain him to you. The God of the Bible is the God of creation. And other religions say that they worship the God of creation. But then we get into the meat of the subject. How do we know the difference between one religion and another? Well, the God of the Bible gave us a promise at the very beginning after the fall of man, which explains why we're in the position we're in, by the way. We all sin. We all have it in us. It's because our first father fell. And the God of the Bible made a promise. And the thing about the Bible is that it is filled with fulfilled prophecy. All the way through it, it validates itself. It says, this book can be trusted because I've already fulfilled this and this and this and this. And he's made promises till the very end where only good will be left and all of the bad will be taken away. But in the meantime, we are born into this stream of time with these problems. And we're born from our first father, Adam. He sinned and we inherit his sin nature. 
That's made explicit all the way through the Bible as well. We're fallen from the moment we're conceived. We're born into sin, and then we commit our own sins. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. We go to work. We get our pay because we have earned our pay. That's our wages. Well, the wages of sin is death. We have earned death. There's two types of death in the Bible. The first is that of Adam's sin, which we inherit. We are spiritually dead. Okay? The second is the physical death, which results from that state. Because an eternal being that is sinful will become infinitely sinful. It'll just continue to go. And so God was merciful in allowing us to have our lives cut short. But if we don't get the first death, that spiritual death corrected before the second death comes, we will be separated from God for all eternity. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God came out of the stream of humanity or out of the eternal realm into the stream of humanity. He was born of man through Mary, but of God from his father. So he is the God man. And so we saw that picture today, the first set of tablets and the second set of tablets. He is fully God and he is fully man. And he didn't break that law, which was written upon him by his father, like Adam did in the picturing of the breaking of those second commandments. And he prevailed over this law that we're bound to by God. And then he gave his life up in exchange for our sins that we've committed under this law. And so that is the deal that God has made for humanity. We can come to him face to face with our sins and say, I worked hard and I did my best and I want to be, you know, I want to be accepted by you and it will never work because the sin already exists there. Or we can go to Jesus who transcends time and who has overcome the law and he can put his infinite hand on our infinite father and he can put his finite hand on us and he can say, I will make the bridge possible back to him for you. And his blood is what covers our sins. So if you've never taken the time to simply ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins and to call on him as Lord and to live for him, do it today. I want you as my savior and I will live for you as you lead me and then pursue him everywhere he goes. And where do you find him? This is where you find him. This is where he's going and this is where we are to pursue him from his superior word. Okay, please do that today. Our closing verse comes from Psalm 121. I will lift my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Great stuff there. Next week is Exodus 32, 25 through 35. Their test is next. Will they score high? It's entitled the golden calf, the testing of the sons of Levi. That'll be our 91st Exodus sermon. And the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. And so follow him and trust him and he'll do marvelous things for you and through you. All right, quick poem, we'll be done. This is called The Testing of Moses. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord as God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt? Of this, help me to learn. With great power and with a mighty hand, this I surely wish to understand. Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them in this place, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the earth's face? Turn from your fierce wrath, do not be spent, and from this harm to your people, please relent. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore and did not lie by your own self and said to them, you did tell, I will your descendants as the stars of heaven multiply. And all this land that I have spoken of, a promise that I will not sever, I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm. He bid it adieu, which he said to his people he would do. 
And Moses turned, as we understand, and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides, words so pure, on the one side and on the other written, they were. Now the tablets were the work of God, as we understand, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets given from God's hand. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. Of this he could not have doubted. But he said in frustration complete, it is not the noise of a shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing is heard by me. So it was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing too. So Moses' anger became hot and he cast the tablets out of his hands. Yes, out of his hands, the tablets he threw and broke them at the foot of the mountain. His anger came forth as a streaming fountain. Then he took the calf, which they had made, burned it in fire and ground it to powder. And he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it like golden calf chowder. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this person do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? What was going on in the mind of you? So Aaron said, yes, even so, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. Surely this people, as you know, that they are set on evil. It hasn't changed in this spot. For they said to me, even thus, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of Egypt, the land, We do not know what has become of him. Of where he is gone, we just do not understand. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let him break it off. So I did shout. So they gave it to me and I cast it into the fire and this calf came out. Lord God, the failings of others are the same as our own. Facing our sin is a most difficult thing to do. Help us to each and every sin bemoan and to walk on the path which is holy and true. Keep us from the offenses which divide our devotions to you, turning them aside Help us to walk always in stride with your precepts, never in haughtiness or pride. Lord God, we thank you for your guiding hand. We thank you for your spirit, which you have given to us. Thank you for the promise of a heavenly land granted because of what was done by our Lord Jesus. Until the day we are there, O God, keep us from turning aside from the holy path we should trod. And on this path, we will give you all of our praise, seeking your face throughout all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the steadfast character of Moses and his humility in your presence, petitioning for the people of God. And thank you that we have a much greater mediator than that, standing in your presence right now, mediating for us, and who is faithful not to usurp what he uh, would otherwise attempt to take, but instead he lived the life perfectly, and then he gave the life up and has been given the the glory and the honor and all of the power that he was due. He followed the proper path and there he is at your right hand forever interceding for us, our great Lord Jesus. Thank you that Moses was also faithful to his people. He didn't just shrug them off and try to take some type of credit for himself and to build his own dynasty. Instead, he was humble and help us to be that same way among our fellows here in this church and all Christians throughout the world because we have strife with them and we get our little pet peeves and we say, I'm never going to talk to this person again when they're in fact a brother or sister in Christ that we're going to reside with for all of eternity. Help us to have a sense that we will someday be with them in a way that we don't now understand and to be forgiving and to be gentle and to be kind to them and not argue with them, but to just be there for them when they need it. Grant us this, that we would be helpful to each other and glorifying of you. 
And Lord, you've heard the prayers and petitions of the people earlier and those that are on the hearts of the people here. I would pray for them right now that they would be uh, uh, responded to. And in particular, our dear friend Lothar, who is going back to uh, Germany to face a certain trial, unless your hand is upon him to miraculously cure him. Whatever you decide, be with him through this. And we would pray it that he would be edified and that you would be glorified. And I pray for safe travels for those who are leaving this week and those who are coming back this week. And Lord, we just want to give you all the praise and glory that you're due, and we'll do it in the beautiful and exalted name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And there Paul wrote these words. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and he would have given thanks over it. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it and he said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper. And he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brother Roy, the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Say hi to Jana for me. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two things. Um, if you've never been baptized scripturally, it reminds me after last night that uh, it's a picture of what you've done by receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You're buried with uh, Christ in his death and raised to newness of life through the power of the Holy Spirit. So if it's something you've never done and you want to do it, infant baptism does nothing. It completely negates the purpose of, of what baptism pictures. And uh, as I said to Mike last night, uh, I only ask two questions when I baptize somebody. And if they answer no to both of them, then I won't baptize them. If they answer yes to the first one and no to the second, then I'll dunk them but not bring them up. And if they answer yes to both, then I will bring them up because it's buried with Christ in his death. And if that's what you want, I'll leave you down there. But if you say, yes, I want to be raised in newness of life, then I'll do that as well. But there you go. Um, so please consider that. And secondly, this is something that, you know, I, I, I get these little things from Sergio and I've gotten for four years. Then I got one a couple days ago. Oh, when we come back from Israel, we want to move to Sarasota. And I, I've gotten this before, though, so I don't want anybody to get excited. But what I would like you to do is to, one, nag the pants off of him, okay, and to keep him in prayer. Because if we can get them to move back here, that would really be a wonderful thing. They're great people. They love this church. They, you know, they attend online. They might as well just be here on Sunday morning instead of, you know, doing whatever they're doing in West Palm Beach. But uh, that would be a really great thing. So please keep that in mind as well. And we'll close in prayer. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being allowed to come to this table. We thank you. What it signifies is the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we will continue to proclaim that until he comes again. And that means an act of faith, is that we know that he is alive. And that's why Paul doesn't say that we... We uh, remember the Lord's resurrection until he comes. He says we remember the Lord's death until he comes because we are living by faith in what that signifies and the promise that he is coming again. And so we thank you for that. We exalt you, O God, above the highest of heavens for what you have done in the person and work of Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his precious and beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.